if Maria Sabina were alive today, would, would Oregon allow her to conduct ceremony here? Uh, what can we do to make it affordable? This doesn't just need to be affordable to people of ordinary financial means. This would need to be affordable to Maria Sabina. This has to be affordable to all people. The amazing thing about the mushrooms is that they speak. They talk to you. They will answer questions, carry on conversations. Psilocybin just pulls up a chair on the porch and puts its feet up. Welcome back to another episode of Psilocybin Says. We're sitting here with Mr. John Dennis, who probably doesn't need much of an introduction. But for those of you that don't know, he is the individual who is really pushing for the religious use to be protected under Oregon's Measure 109 that is allowing for legal psilocybin therapeutic practice in Oregon. Uh, John, welcome to Psilocybin Says. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here. And thank you so much for the, the time and space to come and, and talk about this, uh, this really important effort that, that's underway right now. It is extremely important for so many reasons. I mean, you know, you know what we've been doing with Sanctuary. You know what kind of what we've done with Myco a little bit. I don't know what your knowledge of that project was uh, fully. But before we get really into all that, we'd love to hear about your relationship with psilocybin. Oh, wow. Thank you. So my interest in uh, psychedelics uh, generally actually uh, relates back to uh, my uh, childhood. I grew up in a, in a very uh, conservative religious uh, family. Uh, my dad was a minister and I grew up in a, in a home that had, uh, you know, we, we believed in uh, faith healing and speaking in tongues and, and things like that. I kind of grew up in a, a family of origin that has kind of a, an emphasis on, on direct relationship with the higher power and a person's uh, relationship with God. And, and, and that was kind of the, the thing I grew up in and that was normal for me. And, uh, you know, as a kid growing up in that world, I just had a lot of, you know, just naturally occurring religious experience within the context of church and of, of religious community. And so when I found out later in life that uh, other people had similar or, or you know, spiritual or religious experiences that were occasioned through peyote was the first time I'd heard about it. I just remember having my mind blown that there was a, there was a, a drug, a plant that could occasion that. And, um, and I just remember being like really blown away by that. And kind of my uh, interest in psychedelics has always kind of come from spiritual or religious angle as it uh, can can provide those kinds of experiences. How old were you mm -hmm. when you were exposed to this reference from a peyote? Uh, I was in high school at the time. Uh, thank you, Judy Engel. <laughs> in uh, English class, we were uh, getting ready to yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> we were uh, getting ready to read Brave New World uh, in high in my senior <laughs> class and. Uh, she was just talking about Aldous Huxley and uh, the Doors of Perception, and you know, I I was a fan of the Doors. I didn't know like the origin of their name, and and that it all came from this uh, you know early um, kind of mescaline experience that, that Huxley had and wrote about. I, I just remember it clear as day, being like, whoa, like it's just like a light turned on of like there's something to that. Um, mm -hmm. And it was years later before I ever actually uh, had an occasion to uh, have any uh, psychedelic. So I, I you know I'd read lots of books about it uh, before, uh, you know, I, I always think of it as like, there's those things in life that if a person grows up in a, in a vacuum and they have um, really no uh, social or cultural signaling towards a, a particular thing, 
but they just gravitate towards it. That tells you something about the person that they, they latch onto it in the absence of, of um, uh, social uh, uh, signaling. So that for me, it was very much that uh, the first time I heard about it, I was just like blown away and, and gravitated towards it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, same for me. I was about seven and I heard, I saw peyote. I was in the library as a kid, you know, and, and saw this, Native American using peyote to access the spirit world. And I was just like, wait a second, what? You don't have to have a priest? Like there's an actual a plant that does this? And it just, it blew me away. So what was your first psychedelic experience? Yeah, my first uh, psychedelic experience, probably like a, a lot of people, it was just some friends in college. Uh, you know, we, our friends scored a, a small bag of mushrooms and, and the roommates and I sat around and, and did it. I remember uh, one of my roommates at the time was, uh, you know, really into music composition. And I just remember thinking like, WC didn't write Le Maire from, you know, from a bedroom. He, he wrote it, you know, from a, from a shore uh, looking at the sea, you know, and, and there's this like the, the connection with, with nature, uh, even from the, uh, the inside the, the house where we were doing this, <laughs> it, like it, it was already like connected to nature, even not being mm -hmm. in nature. So it's, it's just sort of like, it was a really um, profound experience that I just remember, like most people, I think, overwhelmed with awe and, and just kind of this sense of there's there's a there's another kind of sacred element of, of existence that that we don't necessarily uh, live in all the time. You know, most of us, you know, but it, but it's there and it's invites us to 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 come and, and to, to live in a more spiritual kind of way. I love that you bring up the social signal signaling and having containers to talk about uh, these experiences has been few and far between for a long time or non-existent. And so I think it's really great that we're able to have this conversation right now and talk about the future of what working with plants in a spiritual way can can look like and what it looks like now. Yeah, they, and it's just such a wonderful time to be kind of alive and aware of this stuff because we are in the middle of a, a whole sea change of, of attitudes and, and approaches to psychedelics in particular, but drug policy more generally. And, um, you know, I just feel like we're, we're at this kind of cultural moment where minds are changing, uh, you know, people are, are becoming more open to things. And, and I just feel like as, as, as people who, for whom this is more than just a casual uh, thing, I really feel like it's up to us to steward kind of psychedelic future that uh, we want to see. And that means protecting this. Like I, I frequently say that, you know, Oregon Measure 109 wasn't passed by legislators. It was passed by a, a vote of the people who did that and overturned the acts of the legislature that said that psilocybin is totally illegal. I think of Measure 109 as a people's law. I think it's it's our law, and it's it's ours to to really uh, kind of steward just a, a good a good system, a good program that can can really uh, be something that that helps a lot of people and that creates space for sacred practice. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. It's mind blowing that we're here really having this conversation. Mm -hmm. Honestly. Two years ago, I would have not thought we'd be here. And when 109 even came on the table, I was just like, really? Wow. So have you were mm -hmm. you involved with 109 from the inception or what's been your journey through that process? Yeah, um, I heard about it um, and I was obviously uh, immediately, you know, holy crap. Like this is wow. This is this is radical stuff like this is um, this is this is the future. Um, 
And I volunteered for the campaign. I live out in Ontario, Oregon, which is about six hours drive from Portland. So I kind of missed out on some of the kind of the social connections and things that, you know, that being involved with the campaign, my, my tie-in was mostly, you know, doing phone banking and calling voters, you know, doing whatever I, I could to help support the cause. And um, because of that, when during the campaign, you know, we would get these regular updates as volunteers uh, from the people running the campaign. And when they shared with us this kind of early polling data that showed that it was about 50-50, like likely to pass before they had even started doing any uh, education mm-hmm. or outreach or, you know, promoting it. Um, it was already like slightly, like the polling data showed that it was likely to pass without any effort even, which was like, whoa, if that's the case and they've got millions of dollars to do <laughs> education, kind of my mind exploded and started thinking about like, what could this mean for society? What could this mean for Oregon? You know, what does this look like and how do we help steward this in a good way? Um, so that's kind of been my um, beginning in, in, in working under 109 and a more kind of professional level, I guess. So you must have had some pretty powerful experiences with the mushroom that compelled you to help move it forward socially. Would you, would you like to talk about any, any of that? Maybe how it did or when it did start to become more of a directly spiritual experience for you? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I guess my, um, I had an early experience in my twenties. It was, um, I guess kind of funny. Uh, my, <laughs> my, one of my best friends in, in, I think 2008 play music and, and we were doing a, like a, a short music tour and we had, uh, scored some, some LSD from a person who we were staying with and I had never done LSD and I was, you know, really curious about it. At the end of the, of our tour, we get back home and, you know, we hadn't done it yet. Uh, so <laughs> this is kind of a funny story. We couldn't find the LSD. It was somewhere in the car. And, it <laughs> and I was like really skeptical, like, sure, you can't find it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so like, it was a really long time later, I was just like, you probably found the LSD, didn't you? And he was just like, yeah, I felt really bad about it. <laughs> so <laughs> I had an overwhelming abundance of guilt for like, you know, uh, hogging it for himself uh, sort of thing. He uh, he later scored some a bag of mushrooms and and gave them to me. <laughs> and he was just like, here, I'm really sorry, you know. You know, and I've always been the kind of person who, when I've um, people have, have gifted me or I've come across, um, you know, some kind of um, psychedelic, I've, I never like rush into do it immediately. I usually... Uh, sit on it for a while and you know because it really it's such a serious thing like I don't like rush into it I I really take time and you know want to put thought and intention into it and so I, I sat on them for a while and and when I finally did them it was at a a kind of a spiritual high point in my life I was uh I'd been meditating without fail every morning for for months and months at that point and I was just kind of at a at a place where I was um able to control my attention in, in any way. This, this, the, the, the trip basically um, was kind of a dark time. I was, you know, working a job that, that wasn't um, satisfying really at all uh, after kind of coming off of a good promising like undergrad time and then, you know, finishing school and kind of getting stuck in a town where I just didn't really feel like I was applying myself uh, very well or very, you know, just, I hadn't really found um, like a plug-in for, 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 you know, my creative skills and, and things like that. The experience was just such a personal, you know, I mean, it's just like with any psychedelic experience, you just, 
it, it's just such a tender thing that it's hard to hard to put it into words. But but essentially, after you know an encounter with with what seemed in that moment to be higher power, I kind of had this this moment of like this game of connect the dots that was revealed to me, where it was like at this point in your life you were here, and this point in your life you were here, and this point you were here. You know, it's just this whole long arc. And then it was like, and now you're here. And even though you don't know why you're here or what you're doing, this arc is not done yet. This is just a point on it. And there's another point after this. And just because you don't know where this is going, you have to trust that, you know, this isn't the end of the line. And this, there's a reason why you're here and and there's, this is going somewhere. And I just, that experience still to this day you know, I still am integrating and, and processing and, and learning from. And so that was kind of uh, my first like true kind of breakthrough experience where it kind of changed things. And, and that's been almost 15 years or, or now. And it's still something that I continue to to get a lot of insight and inspiration from and that I still, um, you know, look to for, for wisdom and guidance uh, during challenging times. Thank you for sharing that story with us. Someone said in the integration call we just got off of today, someone said, when the student is ready, the teacher finds the student. And mm. I love that. It kind of sounds like the mushroom found you when you were ready. It reveals not just that the mushroom or the experience comes at the right time, but that like you're saying, John, that everything is happening as it's supposed to happen. And that trusting the process is simultaneously our greatest freedom and one of our most powerful tools for really bringing that divine into being, you know, all the time that we spend trying to chase and be something that we're not instead of really sinking into the moment and knowing that right here, right now is exactly where we're supposed to be. And that brought you to where you are right now. I have a similar story about, my uh, first experience with mushrooms where I went to pick up a, what I thought was a bag of funky. And I, uh, the, <laughs> my guy handed me a bag of fungi. And I was like, this is not what I thought it was. And he was like, yes, it is. It's fungi. I thought, I thought you said funky. What is this? <laughs> but I'm glad, I'm glad I misunderstood. <laughs> what, what is a bag of funky? And how did one go about cannabis? Getting <laughs> I thought I thought he said funky, you know, some real funky stuff. <laughs> you got another Kentucky. You got another Kentucky, Kentucky slang for That's weed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. Uh, I think. Awesome. Ten years Never heard it called funky before. <laughs> so here, here we are now. You are bringing forth this alteration or addition to the legislature that was passed the religious exemption is not included yet. Can you kind of bring everybody up to speed on where that's at? Before we, before you do that though, when and how did you even start to think, oh, somebody's got to bring in religious exemption here. That's a really important step in the process. Yeah. So um, I've been following the psychedelic religious freedom movement, I guess, for a long time. And I um, actually co-taught a, a class through Psychedelics Today, along with Bill Moore, about the religious use of psychedelics and psychedelics and religious liberties in the United States uh, early uh, last year, um, where we interviewed uh, lawyers and, uh, you know, Jonathan Goldman, the spiritual leader of the 
Church of the Holy Light of the Queen. It's a Santo Daime chapter that sued the federal government for the right to use ayahuasca. They call it Daime. So you know, that, you know, I've, I've kind of I've pretty been steeped in it for a little while. And then, you know, and I, I, I attend pretty much every uh, meeting of the Psilocybin Advisory Board. So I've been following it very closely. Um, and that's led to a show called uh, Eyes on Oregon that um, now uh, Joe and I uh, co-host where we kind of follow the, the updates and developments at Oregon and try to, you know, just bear witness to this process and to also uh, improve and enhance public involvement and participation because, you know, this is such a, a subject of, I think, great national or international interest and historic interest with Oregon's process that uh, there really isn't enough attention being paid to like what I think this means for the future of psychedelics, which I think are, it's hard to overstate how potentially impactful this could be on, on just like on culture. <laughs> um, yes. So I think Oregon's program and Oregon's kind of experiment, I, I just think it's so critically important. And so I've been following it and, and really engaging in it. And uh, as time's gone on, I've been more and more uh, vocal and giving public comments at some of these meetings. Not that I'm like the right person to be doing this, but in some ways I'm the person who happens to be in the room and can insert some things into the conversation that um, aren't otherwise being brought up. So um, I've been surprised that throughout pretty much the first you know, we're uh, over a year into the into the two year rulemaking period uh, for the program, and we had gotten pretty far into it. And I had not ever heard anybody bringing up religious use protections. And to me, that's just such a critical piece. It's I don't think it's a coincidence that churches got to psychedelics before therapy did in a certain sense. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. There's been you know lots of millions and millions of dollars spent fighting, uh, you know, the, the government for the right to, to establish the right. There's all kinds of, uh, you know, and that's been validated at the highest court in the entire U.S. Um, churches got there in a way first, I guess, if you exclude the, the kind of shutdown and research that happened uh, when the Controlled Substances Act passed. Mm -hmm. But um, so, so anyway, I just think that it's like such a critical piece of this that nobody else was talking about. So um, I kind of just started commenting, you know, we have to do something with religion. We have to carve space for, for sacred practice. And part of this is because, you know, Oregon's the first state to do something like this. There's not really a model or a template or anything like that of, of how to do that, um, particularly where this is a regulatory framework. All of the, the religious freedoms that have been kind of established, like pretty firmly, have been through statute with the, you know, Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, or through just case law. In terms of having a regulatory system that carves out certain protections uh, while also instilling certain safeguards, um, it's just I, I'm not aware of it having ever been done. So I kind of started from what, well, how do we do that? Um, and and what, what does religious practice actually look like and how can that intersect with this um, regulatory framework that Oregon's working through right now? Um, so that was kind of the thought. And I drew on uh, all of the, the, the examples that I've known about for psychedelic religions and tried to incorporate uh, things that would, would protect that, you know, their practices. And then I sought stakeholder input and tried to make a, a balanced proposed regulatory framework that could uh, just provide the maximum amount of flexibility to religious practitioners who want to operate under Measure 109. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in some ways, the religious piece is what it is about fundamentally. Um, mm -hmm. 
it also does something that I think is, is really critical as we consider uh, the future rollout of, of psychedelics in, in society and in culture, is it takes it from this vertical top-down model where you have this big service center, this you know, expensive you know, millions of dollars, most likely, or at least half a million, I think, minimum to, to open a service center. And you give very uh, highly regulated products to a trained facilitator, uh, to a client, it's just like this very mm-hmm. top down. And at the end, it's like some rich person saying, you know, you can have yeah. solutions. And yeah. um, that's is offensive to me uh, because this ought really, when you think about how society uh, societies have always intersected with plant medicines, um, it's been a community led, community supported, that the history over thousands of years <laughs> have, have been in the context of community and ceremony. And that's a much more horizontal uh, uh, way of doing it where um, like this top-down, uh, you know, therapeutic model definitely has its place. Like it definitely belongs. Um, and I, I have no problem with that, but but that that's not going to help everyone. Uh, that's not going to be for everyone. And when we think about psychedelic healing modalities, there's a fair question of what's the best container for that. And it's like, there's lots of containers and they, they can serve different purposes, but I just think it's so critical that we had the religious container into this at the earliest opportunity, because as this, uh, you know, gets exported to other States and other places, this, this has been primarily religious throughout history. And so (laughs) for like therapists to take it and say, this is exclusively ours. And, you know, there's no (laughs) legal way to do it. It's kind of nonsense. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Um, You know, I don't know what you have gone into sanctuaries website and and our bylaws and whatnot, but the decentralization of, of access and the experience is central to what we're doing. This, this, one of the big things that we learned and that we didn't, we didn't appreciate about the way that our work in Jamaica developed is that it, it just became this top down. Here's the, here's the guy that knows the most about the mushroom is telling everybody else how to do it. Fully acknowledge that there are levels of skill and knowledge and experience within the space, but we are all in this together. We are, we are, healing each other when we heal ourselves Hmm. and so to really to acknowledge that and to acknowledge the fact that mushrooms are cheap as hell mushrooms don't cost hardly nothing some of them are free out and you know i mean we pick ovoids philosophy ovoidos ovoidiosis stidiata is the main species we use in the church i just go out and pick them god grows them if you will and so that you're bringing this and and certain other aspects of the practice into a legal language and framework is like, it just gets the highest respect from me. I fully acknowledge that there is value in the hierarchical therapeutic model. And even within sanctuary, I think by necessity, there will be, it's going to, it's going to be a multi-dimensional product project, right? But the end goal that we're working for is for the community to support itself. That's mm-hmm. where it's at. Mm. Yeah. Your, your presentation, I mean, that call, it was, you know, we kind of stumbled into it, you know, Mm -hmm. not knowing what to expect or who would be speaking. So seeing your presentation so well thought out and put together and just hearing Maria Sabina's name (laughs) was like, oh, thankfully, like this Mm -hmm. is being 
she's being talked about and uh, her legacy and all the work that she did. And so that was a huge relief and uh, yeah, immense gratitude to you for attempting. I saw, I think that's your eighth draft of, <laughs> is that what I saw? I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy is really, he's really putting thought into this and trying to put it into a language that uh, the Oregon Health Authority can maybe try and wrap their heads around. And I know that that can't be an easy task. Yeah, really grateful for that. And to be talking about what Eric just said, the community support model, which is something that's developing for Sanctuary as we grow and really trying to think about like, what does that look like five years from now, 10 years from now, you know, for Sanctuary, something that we're constantly thinking about is our children and our grandchildren and how this will look for them a uh, hundred years from now. And thinking that far ahead is, is really important. So I love talking about how can we build a space that is, we have built-in support. So we're not always, it's accessible. It comes down to accessibility mm -hmm. and that when we are, when the community is supporting each other, you get double the benefit. You get to hold space for other people and you get space held for you. So you're seeing and being seen. Mm -hmm. So it's not just makes it more accessible, but makes it far more powerful and connecting. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I agree with that so much. And thank you for bringing up Maria Sabina. Um, you know, she doesn't get talked about a lot in, in the Oregon rulemaking process. And to me, that's where this conversation begins because mm -hmm. that's where the West meets mushrooms, you know, meets psilocybin. Mm -hmm. And just the impact that that had. And as I was really doing a lot of like soul searching and just thinking about like, how do we tell this story uh, in a way that's going to resonate with people and, and make sense? It just seemed like the tragedy that happened to her uh, when she interfaced with the West and, and what what that did is it's just it's such a, a heartbreaking, horrible story that, you know, we, we can't forget that, at, you know, and that has to play like a central role as we're trying to to think what do we do with with mushrooms in, in in Oregon so that thank you for for mentioning that and you know we just have so much to learn from her specifically but from just like the context in Oregon like as people are thinking about like regulations and this kind of thing like what about Maria Sabina <laughs> you know what would Oregon do to to allow Maria Sabina if she were alive today to practice yeah. her and I've actually changed my my thinking a little bit since the presentation. I think I I phrased it like, if Maria Sabina were alive today, a would would Oregon allow her to conduct ceremony here? But b, uh, what can we do to make it you know affordable to people of ordinary financial means? My thinking's already evolved in the last like week since then. This doesn't just need to be affordable to people of ordinary financial means. This would need to be affordable to Maria Sabina, rural villager. Uh, who who has lived in poverty? You know, like this has to be affordable to all people. Um, I yes. think that that's the mark that we need to be aiming for. Yes, that that cost is not going to be a barrier to entry for anybody who's seeking uh, these experiences. Yes, we're sincerely hoping and working towards sanctuary being a our services being a donation voluntary donation basis only that you can come in for no money and get access to psilocybin experiences in this group model. Uh, and there are plenty of people out there 
who can afford to help fund those types of services you know, this is being talked about as a, what is it? A $60 billion industry. And there's all this money Th that you brought that up. I was just like struck and very seldomly does anyone present information around this topic that I'm not knowledgeable of, but I I'm pretty sure it was you that said Gordon Watson made $60,000 for that article. I have been saying for, I don't know how many years, I'm so tired of hearing about Gordon Wasson and Albert Hoffman being the ones that brought psilocybin to the West when it was not them. They could have helped Maria Sabina, who died in from from starvation, basically malnourishment. Her house was burned. She was so yes, it, it's it's like I get really passionate thinking about this, and I'm so grateful that there's someone who is at operating at the public level like yourself that's bringing this into the conversation. And there are so many people who cannot afford food and we're going to ask that they have to pay for this exorbitant amounts for this basically free sacrament or medicine, however you want to term it. This is how we got to know John by, by being uh, invited by a psychiatrist friend of mine uh, that I worked with in Jamaica. He knew about this. He's in Oregon, told, sent me the link and said that we should be there. We were really excited when we saw Sanctuary's logo pop up on your <laughs> presentation. That was, we yeah. all kind of cheered here. What? Uh, and, and then we, then we made a video criticizing the whole thing. <laughs> Sorry, we're passionate. Oh, oh, it, it, well, I feel like it's just that we, we just have to educate about about what this proposal means. And I understand from a practitioner's uh, perspective that feels like uh, to, to, to operate in this measure where government's going to be telling you what you can and can't do. But I, I actually think that there's, I have zero problems. Uh, I, in, in my proposal, I talk about the non-negotiables uh, that measure 109 says like you can't, these are mandatory must do kind of things. And I actually uh, don't really have a problem with any of them. I, I think the the one that I could see some communities having a problem with is, is facilitators. But given that this is a broad uh, program of, of that to let everybody uh, in, uh, I, I think it's reasonable to, to say at least one facilitator has to be there. Um, I don't think that's too burdensome or onerous, uh, at least in the early days of the program. Like maybe if we can show that we, you know, that communities can self-regulate and, and manage their themselves safely, then maybe we can revisit that in a few years through a legislative change. But so that that's like the one that I could see people taking issue with because it does drive up the cost more. Um, but other than that, I think everything there is inserting best practices, best safety practices. So I, I don't actually think that there should be uh, like that religious practitioner communities. Other than, I guess, the multi-sacrament thing, I can see uh, some some practitioners expressing disappointment um, about not being able to embrace other healing modalities besides just psilocybin um, within context of Measure 109. Besides those kind of issues, the actual framework of Measure 109 itself provides substantial flexibility to communities, I think, uh, assuming that the, the regulations uh, recognize that and allow that. I don't think any serious uh, community, like spiritual or religious community, would ever be upset about having to do safety screenings uh, right. or preparation sessions to try to, you know, like these are things that all sincere practitioners are already going to be doing on their own to have the state kind of weigh in on some of that stuff and say like our body of knowledge is growing. And so you want to make sure you cover these bases as you're doing that intake kind of stuff. 
Um, to me, that's just logical and makes sense. And nobody, no serious practitioner would be like highly upset about that. Completely agree. You know, I guess our initial response was just, as we talked on the phone the other day, just having the state interfere with religion is, is it setting a, an uncomfortable precedent? And that's kind of my own, my biggest concern, but let's get, let's get into the nuts and bolts of what you're proposing. Uh, and I, I really appreciate that you called it your document the privileges and duties of entheogenic practitioners, because it is an enormous privilege to be able to be of service to this medicine and the people that we serve. So that's your, your language and, and the way that you come at this man is just massive respect. Tell our listeners kind of how this really fits into the 109, maybe where. Yeah. So um, Jesse Sweet is the policy analyst for OHA. Um, he's kind of the person who I believe will be basically is drafting the, the, the rules um, and he likes to explain Measure 109 as kind of a closed loop system where also a psilocybin that's taken within the program has to be made within the program and all of that that's made there can't leave there. So it's kind of a self-contained uh, system. All psilocybin that's made at a manufacturer has to go uh, and be consumed on site at a licensed facility. It's kind of like adult use that's supervised and supported you know, at, a, at a place. Uh, there's a place. And that's uh, one of the key features is it's not a take-home kind of model, which is another like hard, I guess that's another limitation of the framework that I've uh, proposed is um, there's not, like you can't just like backpack with it, uh, you know, because the law just doesn't allow for that. So, um, you know, there are some, some, some issues like that. So this fits squarely within Measure 109, but it's like a closed loop within the closed loop. For an entheogenic practitioner, uh, the entheogenic privileges and duties attached to uh, service centers, uh, to manufacturers, and to facilitators, it's a kind of a set of, of certain privileges to uh, be able to to operate in a way that that may be different from the ordinary rules that govern kind of the therapy side of Measure 109, of the more therapeutic clinical type of applications. Part of the challenge in drafting these privileges is we don't actually know what the, the rules will be yet. So I kind of had to, to assume nothing and just start like a, a serious religious practitioner would be able to do under the measure, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, some of those will likely be allowed for uh, clinical and well applications as well. Um, so the idea is that they will cut down the list of the entheogenic privileges and just have only the ones that are, are, are not otherwise provided for. Some things on there that, that may uh, and probably should be ultimately cut, but in the absence of knowing what, what else is going to be allowed, uh, I kind of put on the side of, of over describing them. So, so it's a closed loop system within the closed loop system that allows at a service center that has been designated as an entheogenic or religious service center that can do ceremony uh, with extra uh, latitude. They can do, um, they can grow products potentially uh, with extra latitude. And that's kind of the gist of it. There's kind of several religious pieces that have a kind of an uneasy potentially intersection with Measure 109. And one of those is that for a lot of communities that practice psychedelic religions, for them, the plant medicine is more than just a medicine. It's a, it is a, an object of reverence and of, should be handled with great care and great respect. You know, the idea of, you know, handle it and put it in like plastic <laughs> or whatever, uh, you know, just might not be uh might, might be really offensive like imagine if if the government were to come into the catholic church and say you know your eucharist which you believe are the literal mm -hmm. 
and blood of, of Christ, you have mm-hmm. to store it in this, you know, th- I, I can just imagine like Catholics mm-hmm. would revolt, you know? Right. Well, um, as you, as you know, Maria Sabina called the sacrament, her little children. So mm. there you go. Yeah, that speaks to their, yeah, the holy children. Yeah. Yeah. Little saints, yeah. So this this creates some room for communities to to handle and treat it and to grow it and to kind of be stewards of it in a way um, that aligns with their values. That's really important. But then it creates this other really great side effect, I guess. If we allow a religious community to grow their own, uh, you know, mushrooms and handle them um, in a way that comports with their their values and beliefs. It creates an option for a really low cost product uh, because mushrooms are not expensive to grow uh, at all. Like you were just saying, they're cheap. Instead of having to go through this, all the red tape, it's just like homegrown mushrooms as a privilege uh, of practitioners uh, creates, uh, you know, a pathway to equity that isn't otherwise provided for uh, within the measure. So there's like the interests of religious and equitable access are really closely aligned. And so it's just kind of really lucky and convenient that that this provides both uh, kind of a, sac- a path for sacred practice and also an affordable pathway. Um, so that's the thought on the product side. Can I bring up something there though? Um, so one, touching on what you said and in, in the, the sacredness of the, the mushroom itself and, and, and also to speak to the sensitivity of the mushroom. This is something that is currently subjective, but it is part of traditional knowledge that the handler of the mushrooms themselves actually affects the mushroom. And I have seen and can attest that the individual who is cultivating the mushrooms has an enormous impact on the energetic quality of these little sponges that they are. Um, And then the other question I want to bring up that is a concern on my end as a practitioner, we even say in our bylaws that wild harvested psilocybin mushrooms are the most sacred. And Mm. even as a cultivator, I've done a lot of outdoor cultivation, the mushrooms being exposed to natural sunlight, the natural rain, the natural elements drawing from the environment has such an impact on the mushrooms themselves and the qualitative nature of the experience. So I understand that this may be just kind of where we're at right now, but that's actually one of the biggest concerns that I have as a sincere practitioner and wanting my sacrament to be as as perfect or as pure as it can be. So Mm -hmm. how, how do we talk about that? How do we work with that? Yeah. So, um, you know, when we talk about the, the so-called non-negotiables under the measure, uh, the measure prohibits outdoor growing. Uh, and there's just no way around that without a change of the legislature. So what's the what's the reasoning behind that? Is it diversion or I'm not actually 100 percent sure um, it, it might be. Um, I know in the early days before the final like measure that we have today was adopted, it was actually merged with the decrim law. Like they, they had kind of combined this supported, uh, you know, regulated system with the decrim measure. I think because they just wanted something that was likely to pass, they kind of made it a little more conservative, um, which, you know, anytime you're promoting a law like this, you, you know, you could make the coolest, most like righteous, awesome law that you can uh, imagine. Uh, but if it's, if it only, is comfortable for like five of your closest friends and no no voters and no legislators, uh, your chances of getting it passed are nil. Uh, so um, I think there was a kind of a political calculus to cut the decrim piece out. And I know that was really controversial at the time. Mm-hmm. They lost a lot of support and ultimately decrim nature uh, came out against 
the measure. So that was kind of uh, like a, an interesting just piece of the history that I, I honestly don't know uh, probably as much about as I should. But I think probably like you're saying, it was more about diversion and, and to have more controls over probably product safety would you know be the other a thing because it, you know, in theory, a lab could I actually think labs probably make more uh, safety problems with, you yes. know, <laughs> wild harvested, but yes. you know, yeah. So I don't, I don't know the, the origins of that, that particular piece, but, but it's in there and we can't work around that. Now there would be some things that the state could do around that if they uh, wanted to, and if they were inclined to, uh, it's not defined what indoor or outdoor grow means, <laughs> so, you know, like you could put like a tent, you know, is, is, is a tent indoor? Like if you put a tent around and grew out of the ground. Is, it, is an umbrella indoor? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say I reject this proposal based on that, but man, that comes close to a non-negotiable to me. You know, mm. these are the, the ovoids that we pick. They they are such gentle spirits. They are so much more friendly than convinces. They have a different mm. vibe to them overall. You know, having given out as many doses as I have and taken as many as I have of so many different strains and species, it's undeniable that this species is... I consider it actually safer, especially when you go to higher doses. Cubensis at, at really high doses, Cubensis can be so disorienting, so terrifying, so kind of, uh, and again, that depends on who's cultivating and the energy that's imputed into them. It's hard to talk about these things. We're trying to put language of spirit into, yeah. <laughs> into this realm language and it's, it's very challenging to convey what, you know, Eric's trying to convey. You get in the space and after having been in the mushroom space thousands of times and you have all this data to, to compare it to, mm -hmm. you know, we know these mushrooms. We know where these mushrooms came from. They came to us. We came to them. And the difference between that and a, obtaining mushrooms from someone we don't know, we don't know how they were grown and everything. That or even if you saying, did grow them. I mean, it's, people tell me all the time, they're so grateful to know that these are wild mushrooms. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is it's almost impossible to convey that when you get into the spirit realm, you know, trying to put this into words is so, mm -hmm. so challenging. It's very different. So what we have developed in order to illustrate our attempts at diversion or our, our strict code around diversion is we document everything that we harvest you know we document the dr the dried weight uh and then we document every dose that goes out after that and i just wonder is there is there any way like, i know that oregon says this is a non-negotiable for the 109 mm -hmm. but is there just is there does that just mean that there's just absolutely no way to develop a better framework or a better method at least for churches that have this kind of sincere practice or is it just out the door right now? Well, I'm really glad that you uh, both brought up the species issue because I think that that's important. The current proposed regulation around products basically would have all psilocybin used in Oregon be derived uh, from psilocybin cubensis. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can be the, the fruiting bodies, the, the hyphae or mycelium, uh, as well as extracts uh, of those but all of it has to be sourced through Cubensis uh, is the general rule that's been proposed. Part of my framework would allow 
religious communities to uh, cultivate whatever species uh, they believe is is you know consistent with their their values and practice. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think that's an important piece of this too that I've heard other people kind of um, upset about. And you can kind of understand why the state's concerned. There's a lot of new things, and this is all kind of like scary. You know, like you know this is new, and they're just trying to eliminate the number of variables of things that could go haywire. Um, Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I understand it on a certain level. I really do. In the federal context, if there was a, like, like you all, uh, like a religion operating under RIFRA, uh, the feds have no business uh, under RIFRA telling you all uh, what species you can use or not use. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of the idea of this framework is to make Oregon's rules mirror the federal protections as closely as can be allowed within the context of the measure, which mm-hmm. should allow uh, diversity of species and allows communities to cultivate species that they they choose. And um, I actually haven't even heard of the species that you're talking about. Um, there's so like you know over 200 species, and right. uh, most people only really know have tried cubensis. But um, oh, and, and just let me say while we're talking about it that I long for the day when I get to consume some azurescence. <laughs> I feel like I can just. I can smell them. I want, I want them so much. <laughs> uh, but, you know, a lot of these species can be cultivated indoors. You can't cultivate as essence indoors. Avoidiosa studiata is really challenging to cultivate indoors. Uh, the soil bacteria plays an important part in the fruiting. And so that just, again, displays the importance of the interconnectedness of nature and the value that that can bring to the experience. So anyway, this is something we don't want to, we don't want to go on too long. Do you want to say something, Courtney? Um, also, and forgive me if we've touched on this, but for those those listening may not know that there's the federal RIFRA mm-hmm. and then there's the state RIFRA. So Kentucky has um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, whereas Oregon does not. Psilocybin mushrooms are not new to the human experience. While they may seem like a recent discovery in mental health, these mushrooms have been considered sacred since the Paleolithic period for their ability to heal the human spirit and therefore the mind. Sanctuary Church is reviving the traditions of our ancestors for a modern world as a faith-based organization centered around the sacrament of sacred mushrooms for spiritual exploration and personal development. Sanctuary invites like-minded individuals to become a member and commune with us. Join us for Sunday Zoom service or a weekend sacred mushroom retreat in the beautiful Kentucky countryside. Visit P-S-A-N-C-T-U-A-R-Y dot org to become a member or for more information. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. This is kind of one of these uh, educational things that in order for people at OHA or on the advisory board to, to understand why this is so critical, like that's that's the legal framework that this all exists in, and, and it creates the necessity for Oregon to do something at the regulatory level here. Generally speaking, well, and I talked about this a little bit in the presentation, but when RIFRA passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, it was a direct rebuke of Oregon's allowing discrimination against peyote uh, practitioners. The U.S. Supreme Court decided the First Amendment doesn't protect against that type of discrimination. When that was decided, everybody revolted. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a 97 to 3 uh, Senate vote. Uh, you know, it was unanimous in the House. Um, it was this unicorn kind of unanimous issue in a, in a context of deep political factions and divisions. Like everybody, pretty much, like almost literally everybody agreed that this is like what we need to do. <laughs> I think that's like the the framing and the context that that this 
question in Oregon arises under. So with RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as being kind of the, the, the landscape in which Oregon's, you know, wrestling with these issues. When RIFRA passed, though, it was intended that it would bind all states, all 50 states and D.C. Uh, would be uh, prohibited from ever doing what happened in Oregon v. Smith again, which is, you know, discriminating against a peyote practitioner. And so this case came out later, City of Bourne v. Flores, uh, where the U.S. Supreme Court found that Congress had overstepped its constitutional authority uh, in binding the states in that way. It's kind of a technical legal thing. The intent was to bind everybody, but it turned out they didn't have constitutional authority. permission to, to bind like that. So, um, so because of that, once, once that got kind of shot down, uh, binding at the states, it's still binding on the federal government. So what happened is uh, a bunch of states then passed their own, you know, uh, I think Gary Smith calls them mini RIFRAs, their own kind of state version of RIFRA that gives the same protections that we all had intended to uh, grant at the state level. And so Oregon never adopted like a, a state RIFRA. In fact, because of the constitutional decision it made in Oregon v. Smith, the presumption is that Oregon doesn't protect against psychedelic religious practice. I, I think there's actually some question about whether that's that's actually true now. I, I, I really wonder uh, today if Oregon v. Smith were to reach the Oregon Supreme Court, I almost think that they would decide it differently. But I don't think any uh, psilocybin religious practitioner should have to spend all of the hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, litigating it up to the Oregon Supreme Court to get a a decision on that, though. Well, Mm -hmm. that's where I want to maybe, I don't know, I don't want to make, I don't want to get you too uncomfortable here. But that's what it keeps coming to my mind is, is this what's going to have to happen? Is someone going to have to a collective perhaps say, okay, we're ready to push this. We're ready to bring this to Oregon and see what are you going to do? Because if it's going to go to the Supreme Court, then there's already precedent that Oregon's going to get overturned. If I had the money, I'd say, let's do this right now because this is our right. It's 100% our religious right to go and, and harvest these mushrooms. Now, Like have, to have this done in a responsible, monitored way that proves that this substance that could be sold on the black market that, that this is not some kind of cover for illicit use or recreational use, which even the recreational and spiritual, I hope we can talk about that a little bit. I, I think we could probably do another two hour talk, John, and really have, have plenty to, to cover. I guess you answered that, that question that I've been wondering in your, with your own question is, you know, I don't know, how would Oregon respond? You mentioned, John, that you think if it were to Oregon versus Smith, if that were to go to the Supreme Court, this time around, if it were to happen again, you think it would be decided differently? What has you feel like it might go differently if it were to go there again? Well, part of it is thinking has changed. So uh, Oregon v. Smith was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1990. And, you know, we're over 20 years, 30 years later, and we've just had a massive change in, in thinking about these issues, you know, in Oregon being a state that, you know, has now legalized, not just decriminalized psilocybin for, by recreational, you know, but we've, we've allowed recreational use of psilocybin uh, at this point. And we've decriminalized possession of it, not only psilocybin, but heroin, <laughs> meth, cocaine, uh, LSD, MDMA, there's still 
other uh, drugs, you know, uh, that are uh, not decriminalized in Oregon, like ketamine, uh, DMT, um, really? you know, mescaline. Yeah, uh, those are all still, unless it's peyote. That's the interesting thing. We have a we have a peyote protection statute that doesn't Native American access it under state law. I think education that needs to happen because everyone talks Oregon decriminalized all drugs. It's actually not true. Um, we only mm. criminalize like eight of them. Times have changed. And so the question to me comes down to like, what kinds of harms does this cause society? And mm. as long as the communities are, are behaving responsibly and taking uh, client or congregant safety to heart and, and, and taking that very seriously, I don't think there's like a huge risk of harm. You know, I just think that the needle has moved the broad unanimous rejection of that, including Oregon's two senators you know, who voted in favor of RFRA overturning Oregon v. Smith. You know, I just think that times have changed and, and you know, sometimes uh, courts get things wrong. And I, I think yeah. that uh, it just got the wrong answer there. And there's been enough time that's passed that it could give it a, a new fresh look. And I think it would consider it differently now. So true. I just had this vision come to mind of our grandchildren watching this podcast 50 years from now watching this podcast and laughing their asses off oh, like, yeah. in disbelief that this is even that a, this is even yeah. a conversation you, know what, people, you lock people but... in cages for a mushroom <laughs> yeah like, what did you did you know courtney and i were arrested for psilocybin i didn't know yeah in 2015 we were doing mm. a uh, we did a service on our farm ceremony on our farm and uh despite having taken we took the keys of everyone uh, but a young woman who was Courtney's friend came there and she was having a challenging experience and she asked if she could go lay down in her tent. And so I let her go. I said, yeah, it's cool. of course, go ahead. And uh, we're five of us there around the fire. She was maybe 20, 30 feet from us in her tent. We had her keys in our house and probably 20 minutes after she left the fire, her taillights were blasting down our driveway. And I just thought, she's going to fucking die or kill somebody. This is horrible. This is the end. She wanted to go see her boyfriend. She crawled on like army crawled through the darkness and had a key magnetized under the bumper of her car. And she mm -hmm. drove off and got into a, just a ran off into a ditch. Uh, didn't get hurt or anything, but she got out of the car, was disoriented. Neighbors came out and uh, cops came. And then a few days later they came and and raided our farm. And they said to me when they came in, you know, we don't want to be here. We appreciate what you're doing. I had a gourmet mushroom farm and said, we appreciate what you do for the community. We don't want to be here, but we were called. So we have to show up. And uh, they did eventually find um, a pound of psilocybin and that's documented on various other episodes that we don't have to go into right now. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it is insane that we've been locking people in cages for plants, basically. And, and that brings up a, another conversation around safety and clearly we learned a lot after that experience a whole lot let's talk about safety a little bit more and um i'm curious what the protocols would be for licensing an entheogenic practitioner what what goes into to that uh, so let's talk about that first what goes into that yeah so for a service center, uh, essentially, you would have to just apply like you would for a regular license. Um, I've included in my um, proposal that um, a couple of points that I, I think are, are, are pretty important. Uh, first off, in order for a service center to get entheogenic practitioner privileges uh, under the proposal, they have to be a nonprofit. And uh, I thought that was really an important thing to include 
because if we're going to allow this as a uh, sincere uh, practice, uh, profit motive should be kept to a minimum in that. And if we're allowing these kind of special workarounds to the, not, they're not even workarounds, they're just a different relaxed set of rules. It's critical that we not just let those be a business competitive advantage, mm-hmm. um, you know, and if people are, are doing it for money, we don't want them to, to be able to exploit entheogenic practitioner privileges. Um, so I kind of reserve in, in my framing of this, privileges have to be given to only nonprofits. Somebody could argue with me about that. And I, I would be interested, open to having that conversation, but we can't let a profit motive, you know, wield these, these privileges, I, I think. So I, I've, um, in there required that they be a nonprofit. So that's, that's a critical piece of that. And it has to be for a service center. Ordinarily, an individual could own a service center uh, license themselves uh, as an as a individual. I've required in my proposed model that it has to be a nonprofit organization because it has to be a community and not an individual. Yeah. Uh, which mm-hmm. I thought was another uh, critical piece of that because this the vision here is that it is a community-led, community-supported organization that that does this. So those are some some slight deviations from the general rules. Is that it only applies to nonprofits organizations who sign some kind of attestation saying that this is part of their deeply held values, convictions, or beliefs. Do those nonprofits then not have to be registered as a church because 501s don't have to just be churches, but all churches are nonprofits. Oregon's constitution protects both the religious and the irreligious alike. You know, I, I, this was all done considering psychedelic churches, um, but I think it has to be flexible enough to allow like a, a secular uh, spiritual organization to still uh, open and operate um, with the same set of privileges. So that type of IRS designation and that doesn't come into play in the way I've, I've framed it. Um, okay. Yeah, so that's uh, so there's that piece. Like it has to be a nonprofit, has to be an organization um, or community, uh, really, and um, and there has to be some kind of affiliation with the community uh, in order to, or or you know, for a client's perspective, uh, they can show up. You know, they're they're allowed to be uh, explore their spirituality or their religious views. You know, without having to say I'm a member of this church, they can say I'm I'm just curious and exploring and. We're not going to try to make people pretend like they uh, are like card-carrying members of a of an organization before they can access the uh, the services at one. One of the nuances in all of this is that there is a soft boundary between a therapeutic and a religious model here in what you're proposing, which I think that's I think there's a lot of value in that. In my mind, it raises some concerns about how we ensure sincerity. 501s can still be profitable. There can be individuals that reap the harvest. With sanctuary, we do require everyone to become a member of the church before they're given access to the sacrament because we want to know that they are vested in working with the sacrament and not just having some kind of one-off experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so another uh, piece of this is that with the peer support model that is is in the framework, the idea is that eventually, once a community has been established and grows and is able to teach its the the community members, uh, or or they they just develop competencies organically over time, mm-hmm. 
um, that as a as a client, you know, under the in the phrasing of Measure 109, uh, the the whole community will be clients. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was tricky. Yeah, it was yeah, reading that. We're that like, was hold on, clients confusing. versus okay. <laughs> yeah, but but that's how the the measure would interpret a person who comes to a service center and takes psilocybin is they're all clients. Mm-hmm. A client who serves in a peer support role after having been kind of initiated and trained and certified as being uh, qualified to do that, those clients uh, when they're serving in a peer support role aren't allowed under my framework to uh, charge for that, those services. Uh, and I, I kind of wrestled with whether to leave that in or not, because if you compare it to a regular, you know, like a regular church, um, the pastors, you know, it's their livelihood. And, and so I, I kind of wrestled with whether to allow um, a peer support person to, to actually get paid for, for the work they do in ceremony. And I ultimately declined to, to allow that. I think there are other ways that uh, spiritual communities could operate under the measure. So there could be religious instruction. I mean, there's other ways that they could provide for livelihoods uh, that that don't involve uh, like the ceremony itself. Part of the the, the hope was to, to keep as much money out of it as possible, or at least to give communities the option of keeping as much money out of it as possible mm-hmm. um, so that it can be affordable and, and you know, just really community oriented rather than profit driven. Um, totally. I mean, that's, you can ask Courtney in Jamaica, I was always, and I still very much kind of tell people like, I don't even want to know what you're paying. I don't want to talk to you about money. If I am working with you as a support person in, in this space, I do not want to talk with you about money. That should not be part of our conversation because this is such a like there's so much sensitivity and so much vulnerability. And if, if it's being broken down into some kind of exchange rate, then it devalues it for, for everybody, you know, but at the same time, everyone that's putting in consistent, sincere work has to be compensated and has to have some kind of a menial standard of living. Digging into this is probably one of the most important parts for, for Courtney and I, and as we structured sanctuary, keeping people safe and thoroughly training folks on how to work within the space has been absolutely paramount. So if we could kind of like really explore this a little deeper and maybe maybe we can offer some of our experiences and insights into what you're thinking about and you can share with us in terms of what's being discussed even at the state level outside of your proposal but within 109, what are the training measures? Because it seems like on, my, on, on our perspective and what we've heard, the little bit we, that we've heard, which there's basically nothing, right? You don't know what the training protocol is really going to look like is that I'm, I'm concerned that there's not enough training. Yeah. So that's um, part of the, the challenge of this is balancing uh, affordability and safety. And I think one of the major factors in cost of services is going to be paying facilitators. The going hourly rate of facilitators in many uh, respects will be governed by how much education is required to become a facilitator. If you can have a short program, uh, there's still going to be really, I think um, I've heard ballparks of even $18,000 for a good training program. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they might go above that. I mean, that's the minimum is a hundred and uh, sorry, 160 hours is the, is the proposal uh, right now that the States um, kind of run through the rules advisory committee actually mm-hmm. in the next couple of weeks. Does that include a practicum, like actually being in the space, the mushroom space? 
it's 120 hours of what they call like core curriculum, which is, you know, the more like kind of book learning, uh, social, you know, like asynchronous learning part uh, and synchronous. It's, it's like more more the classroom piece. And then there's 40, only 40 hours required of the practicum piece, which um, again, doesn't feel like enough. But uh, so there's just kind of this like challenge we're trying to develop this program we're going to have to gain a lot of competencies in this this whole field you know and the other interesting thing about measure 109 is during the first two years of the program so uh, from when it starts in early next year until the end of 2024 all facilitators have to have been an Oregon resident for two years you know we can't draw in uh, the expertise of facilitators from outside other than in training programs so we have to kind of source that locally. Uh, wow. That means that there's going to be kind of a, a hard to, to keep it affordable. You know, there's just like, so there, you know, they, these are what the, I think what the state's wrestling with in deciding these issues. And it, it I, I don't think anybody truly knows what the minimum amount of training is to, to make it both affordable and safe enough, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow. That, that is uh, incredibly limiting. I mean, limiting is maybe not the right word. That's a gaping hole for some safety risks. If you're not able to have out-of-state facilitators and, you know, the level of experience being what it is inside of Oregon may be considerably low. I don't, I don't know how to hmm. even interpret well, that right It now. seems like utilizing faith-based organizations as a way to provide that training and actual experience could be really valuable. I mean, I'm, you know, sitting here thinking about sanctuary and our protocols, and we always have one male and one female cleric holding space for any sacrament communion, which is really important to us for several reasons. One person being more of a volunteer uh, or person in training, or, you know, it seems like there could be some cohesion or teamwork. <laughs> well, and we, we do have a wonderful opportunity to train people. And, and, you know, I guess like, that's what I want to bring to the table is that I didn't know that I didn't know what was going on until like dose 50 working with groups and people mm-hmm. can, people can take psilocybin by themselves and in groups of two or three all day long, but you open that up to a group of 15 or 20 people and it drastically changes the dynamic and you can screen all you want you know, that does help to, to weed out, you know, the most extreme cases, but I have I've seen therapists have, have been very challenging to work with. I've worked with, yeah, the list could just goes on and on. I mean, the, the things that I just didn't know that I didn't know that I now do know now that I, w- I would love to find some way to help contribute to this body of knowledge and if I can't be in there facilitating, then if there's some way that I could be helping to just prepare. And if, if there was a way outside of Oregon that we can get people real time in, because that is the single most crucial factor in maintaining the safety. And, and, and this is not just speaking of like, you know, acute physical safety, someone doing something to their, to their body that, you know, has long-term effect but psychological safety and spiritual safety, the things that come up, especially in the group dynamic, that if you do not know how to really manage, if you're not experienced in managing those situations, you can absolutely do more harm than good. How to bring this into the conversation without causing alarm is really important. Uh, And then how to get people 
adequate hours and experience working in these situations so that they can then come away with the the skill and ability to further develop. Because I will tell you right now that this is something that, what am I in? 20 something years. It was 10 years of dosing friends and self before I ever felt even closely ready to dose strangers. You know, you you've handing out feeding psilocybin to people that you have never met and the the importance and the difficulty in building a rapport with people in those three hours, if you even have that before putting them into this incredibly vulnerable space with a bunch of other people that are also in the same or in a very different, but the same circle, it, it, it is a dynamic that cannot be described. Mm. And it's such a rich and amazing field of discovery and learning and, and, you know, the things that you can, begin to understand about the human being itself and the levels that we function on and how we interplay with this matrix that we're swimming in uh, is just an endless field of inquiry uh, that, you know, I constantly am learning more and more in. I don't know if this is something that I that obviously is a big, a big consideration for us where we are working on and have been developing a training program for sanctuary, our model is to train individuals to first be clerics who can sit in the mushroom space with people. You can't even you can't even sit in the circle without having eight weeks of prep work. And then once you get into the circle, another 10 months of intensive practicum mm. before mm. you're able to be a minister. And even then, we want to have protocols on the level of sacrament that a minister is able to disperse. I can feed people 10, 20 grams of mushrooms, and I have done that many, many times, but many people that I work with that I train are not ready to do that yet. So having these like incremental levels of experience, and this is, again, like it's really difficult to not turn it into some kind of hierarchical situation. We don't want it to be that, but we have to acknowledge that there are varying levels of experience and skill within this space it's not it's just not that you just feed people mushrooms and then the mushrooms take care of everything the practitioner is a huge part of the 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 outcome so anyway i'm rambling go no that, that, that's that's really um this is this is like a really hard uh, i don't think anybody knows the the exact amount like the, how to strike that balance but um, one of the things that comes up for me as I keep watching these board meetings is that, you know, everybody comes into these conversations with their own personal biases and experiences. As uh, many people on the board are therapists, they bring that perspective as a therapist. It's different than that as a religious practitioner. And I think as a religious practitioner, you you come to it with your uh, biases as a religious practitioner. And th the challenge is how, how much is the actual like minimum amount? Like when we're talking about this, we're not talking about aspirational uh, skill and, and, and quality of work. We're talking about minimum competency. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> You know, because we're talking about a broad social program. And if somebody wants to become like really skilled and adept at it, then, you know, there's clearly room to go really, really deep and, and get really uh, skilled in terms of who's gonna, who are we going to allow to do this? Uh, you know, they're, they're bound by, you know, professional responsibilities and duties, you know, that should prevent certain types of behaviors and activities in the majority of cases uh, from facilitators. But on the other hand, you know, 
now that we're kind of starting to create this like industry of, of psychedelic professionals, a lot of us are, are very opinionated <laughs> about it and how, you know, how important it is and how we need to take it very seriously. I don't think I've ever, I guess I have now met people who, who first had their psychedelic experience uh, through like a, a clinical research, you know, where they went through prep and all that. And they had like ideal uh, circumstances for their first experience. But I think the vast majority of people who have ever taken psychedelics had none of that. <laughs> Somebody gives them some mushrooms or LSD or whatever it is. And, you know, they figure it out on their own. Um, there, there's like kind of a, it is on the one hand, like super, super important, but on the other hand, like it's probably going to be fine, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. um, Thanks for that. <laughs> if you, if you impose like, you know, years and years of study before you, you're able to kind of work with these, these substances, um, I just think it becomes more medical, frankly. Um, uh, and, and, and that's kind of the opposite, I think, of what the spiritual community you know, it's not to say that we don't want to take this really seriously. Um, in my uh, proposal, I kind of give religious communities this option to certify their own peer support uh, providers. And the state could decide how much it wants to regulate that certification, if at all. Uh, and I've recommended that the state have a completely hands-off approach and say, uh, this is a community decision. We're going to trust you all to, to decide when a person's ready to start serving in that role. But if, if the state were concerned about it and wanted to say, like with what you all do, if, it, if, it, if you put all these things in place, say before you're ready to do that, you know, to serve in a, in a, a clerical role, you have these steps you got to go through. I, I think, you know, I, I just think that the community is going to be in a better position than the state to decide what those steps mm -hmm. are. But yes, if, the, if the state were really concerned about it, I think they could, I think it would be within reason for them to, to say, we want, you know, a, a peer support provider to be, you know, at least initiated to the community for, you know, two months or eight ceremonies, you know, they could, they mm -hmm. could phrase that however they wanted. I, I don't think that would be, I, I wouldn't be like personally offended by that. The better solution is just to, to trust the community to, to self-manage knowing that if, if they do it carelessly, uh, there's going to be trouble. <laughs> well, and if you do it well, then that will be known also, right? I mean, it's like any, I struggle calling this an industry or, but any profession, people know you by your reputation. And if you do good work, then people will know that and they'll want to be a part of your organization and they'll come and want to train under you or, or all that. So, you know, mm -hmm. yes, yes to less regulations, uh, but also yes to community accountability. Which uh, brings me to think about the reciprocal exchange program mm -hmm. that you mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. in your draft that I read over. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I'm really interested. Yeah, thank you. Um, so Chakruna has just been an amazing leader on, on, on a lot of fronts with, within the plant medicine uh, community. And um, I kind of draw inspiration from their, their work. They've kind of put this issue on my radar that in order for this not to perpetuate kind of the R. Gordon Wasson extractivist uh, model, uh, there really needs to be a meaningful exchange that's happening uh, with, with indigenous communities and with, you know, the kind of the, the communities that have stewarded these 
these sacraments are uh, for all of us. We owe them a, a high amount of respect and gratitude. So do you all know what a reciprocal exchange program is? As I understand, it is some kind of compensation, if you will, towards indigenous communities. Compensation is one way that that can happen, um, but it's not the only way. It can be an exchange of uh, dialogue, of, of values, of, of, of wisdom, of cultural exchange also. It's just as long as there's reciprocity uh, between the communities that have stewarded this and the communities that are now profiting from it, that there has to be some kind of, of, of exchange there to make it equitable. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of the, the idea behind that. Um, so it's yeah. not necessarily tied to financial contributions to those communities? It's, it's not, yeah. So okay. I would love it if, assuming it could be done in a respectful and, and, and delicate way, uh, to have exchange programs where um, you know, Mazatec or, or other, uh, you know, medicine people come to Oregon and, and, and lead ceremony. And that would be, we have so much to learn and we might even have something to, to teach too. I mean, mm -hmm. it might, that's the idea is that this is a reciprocal mm -hmm. uh, relationship and, um, you know, everyone would be benefited from, from the, those kinds of exchanges that could look like a lot of different things. And in, in the proposal, it doesn't specify how much involvement, like it's not meant to be like a punitive system. It's meant just to be like, a, we want to reward uh, people for meaningful participation in the, in a, in the exchange programs. Um, but it doesn't define how much is required. It just says you have to do it. And then they'll publish uh, under the pro under the proposal, they'd public the OHA would publish um, an annual report for every entheogenic service center uh, and entheogenic manufacturer mm -hmm. uh, to to show what they did to satisfy those requirements. So it provides a positive incentive, social incentives for communities to do that in a meaningful way. Yeah, that's incredible. It's it's and it's really awesome. I have to say that. You know, we have been without knowing what you all or what, you know, you specifically or Oregon overall has been attempting to implement that we are our organization has been very much in line and in some instances going above that. So it is affirming to us. We want to know and we want to be held sanctuary, not just courting now, but sanctuary wants to be held accountable for everything that we're talking about from the from the access and the maintenance of the sacrament to the safety of the members to the training of the clerics and the facilitators and the ministers and in this responsibility to the indigenous from which these sacraments were were given to us uh, so we we even have a program that we're working i don't know if you would you know by any chance oliver Quintanilla? he's the documentarian who did the little saints uh it was a movie documentary from i think like 2016 or 17 where he went he he's been going and, and working with a uh, a shaman in um, Oaxaca for many many years. Uh, Natalia <laughs> is her name, and he and an, another friend of mine uh, that I met through Oliver have been going down doing work, building homes, and helping the community. and And it's and it's community inspired, community based support. They're not going down and saying, "Here's what you all need." They're saying, "What do you need? What do you want?" Mm -hmm. You know, Oliver is a uh, you know, from uh, Mexico City, I believe is where he was born. He's just one of the one of the very early individuals who brought attention to the religious use of the little saints, you know, of the, like the movie's called. Uh, and so our coaching program uh, has built into it that three percent of all of our profits 
go mm-hmm. towards his his foundation, uh, which is helping to serve the Mazatec community. So, yeah, no, I really it's it's so awesome to hear just how you're coming at this. It very it's just the sincerity is is so obvious. And I love knowing that we're on a similar page, you know, similar wavelength. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, that's really, uh, Mark Plotkin has also done a lot of amazing work. Uh, he's uh, spent a lot of time studying indigenous uh, practice and, uh, you know, has tried to actually create some potential like intellectual property rights for indigenous communities that have mm-hmm. who, who know these medicines and, you know, particularly in the Amazon where there's just kind of an insane amount of biodiversity. Uh, these indigenous people have lived with these plants forever, uh, have evolved, co-evolved with these plants. Um, and they have, he calls them like a, a, a library, like a whole mm. like m- amount of information that they steward. And as they're diminishing or, or dying off, you know, we, we lose the, this knowledge forever. And so we have to do something to try to capture that. And there's, there's, and when we engage with these kind of indigenous communities, we just have to do it respectfully and, and tread, you know, lightly and carefully and, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, just make sure that the impacts that we have are, are supporting them in, in, in their own autonomy. Yes. Now, if there's anything that I could do better and, and even sanctuary as an organization, but me in particular, you know, I've never had the financial means to travel to Mexico and learn from, you know, the, the shamans in the highlands there, uh, Central America, to be more directly involved and learn from the practitioners is something that I would most likely greatly benefit from. That's something that I'd love to see develop for sanctuary as time goes on. If we did have that as part of our exchange, not just you know financial support, but mm-hmm. actually transfer of knowledge, because there is truly, there's surely something that we can actually share with them as well, you know? I believe that's that's true. I'm nervous about saying that, I guess, because you know we just have such a history of of hubris and arrogance. That mm-hmm, us, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. You know, before we can, I think, start by you know acting like you know we're we're here to, to show them something, we have to just really learn to to listen better uh, as as people uh, ready to preach. You know, anything. Yeah, yeah. No, I never, I never even considered the thought that I could have something to teach a Oaxacan shaman until you brought it up first and foremost to, to learn from the individuals who it's, it's been thousands of years that they've been working with this knowledge. How much have we lost? But it's also like, it's wonderful to think that like our children teach us daily, our children as do our elders. And so to recognize that everybody's got a role to play in this, is a beautiful thing. And, hmm. you know, while yes, we certainly need to listen more to our elders and, and to respect our predecessors ending or limiting this, like this kind of social dichotomy and this polarization and really understanding that we are all in this together. I mean, if there's one thing that the mushrooms have continued to teach is that it's all one, you're all in this together. So work together to sort it out. Yeah, I'm just really hopeful that, you know, if Oregon can set a really good example for what psychedelic services look like, we just, I think, have this extra duty to get this right and to make this equitable because whether we like it or acknowledge it or, or, or not, we're the, the world's kind of leading Western example of psychedelic 
services at this point. And it's so critical that we get sacred practice in there and, and have it be, you know, at least on equal footing with, you know, therapeutic practice. And, you know, and I don't think that these are like hard lines. I think there's a ton of overlap. I think mm -hmm. uh, psychedelic therapy will be very spiritual for a lot of people and, you know, psychedelic religious practice will be very healing for people. So I don't really mm -hmm. think that these are like crude dichotomous kind of categories, but hundred percent. To, to have have it be cited within community is just like to me it's just fundamental that we have to like psychedelics have to belong to the people <laughs> you know yeah. they're not just doled out like from a, yeah, <laughs> on <some> high <laughs> yeah <laughs> and can i can i just i want to i'll bring up one more thing i know i keep talking so much but oh, what keep is going. incredibly badass of your proposal and is a huge nod to indigenous practice is the fact that you include provisions for maybe not, I don't know, the language gets a little tricky, facilitators, but I, I say facilitators, for facilitators to consume the medicine or the sacrament alongside of the people that they're supporting. Now, you know, you can you can clarify that, but that is such an important thing to bring into the discussion. Yeah, thank you. Um, so that was um, part of the inspiration from Maria Sabina um, and, and I want to clarify from a legal sense, the term isn't facilitator. Right, right, right. Under the law, facilitators have to be, they can't take psilocybin while working as a facilitator. So right. the facilitator doesn't take psilocybin, but to have, um, you know, ceremony or, 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 or ritual that is um, being conducted by a, a client who is taking psilocybin is critical. Um, as I've looked around uh, at just kind of the scope of, of religious practice using uh, plant medicines, I think almost all of them that, I, that I've been aware of, the, the ceremony is led by a person who's taking the sacrament. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen, uh, I've heard people really criticize practitioners who don't take sacrament with their uh, clients. And I, and I, and I think there's room for all of that. I mean, I'm not saying that it has to be like that, but I think at a minimum we have to allow that because uh, that is just such a widespread religious practice for, for communities that, that use plant medicines that you have to do that. So thank you for mentioning that. That was a, an important part of the, of the, well, talk, talk a little bit more about why that, I mean, I know you said, you said Maria Sabina was inspiration behind that and that people are critical of it, but why, so our listeners can understand why are some people critical of practitioners not dosing alongside of their clients? Well, I'm not sure I'm the best person to speak to that. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily take a, a strong view personally. I mean, I think, just think that that's the practice uh, that I'm, I'm aware of. And I think we have to allow that practice. And, you know, again, it's like, it's hard to put these things into words, but there's kind of a spirit in the room or a, mm. a, a an energy uh, that I think the presence of a, of a, a person who's not on that wavelength can really affect the dynamics of the room and uh, it can affect the um, experience of people. And there's some level of it, like being anchored into that person who's not, if everyone's on the same kind of wavelength that people can drift together or, or, or journey together in a, in a different way uh, than, than if there's like the, the, the awkward, you know, uh, square guy in the corner. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I was just trying to get you a little woo-woo on us. You did okay. You've got me a more woo-woo than I think I've ever been uh, right. with any of this stuff. All so right. good job. Wow. <laughs> okay, so that reminds me uh, to invite you 
to our Sunday services oh, uh, yeah. as sanctuary. I mean, that's mm -hmm. something that we do for the public. You don't have to be a member. We generally have about 20 to 40 people mm -hmm. show up on Sundays. They're every Sunday at 10 a.m. So we do like a 30-minute service, a meditation. Uh, it's very non-dogmatic. Yes, we do a meditation and we do a poem and we have two readings. We always read from the Tao Te Ching and then we have a rotating book and then we have a discussion. It's like 90 minutes of really potent discussion from our public community. So I feel like you would definitely be well received there. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the invitation. I'll, I'll definitely um, make it, send me a link or I don't, let me. Yeah, let me sure. Hey, do you yeah, want to tell me no how, pressure. how they, could, uh, they could get tied into that if, if they want to? Yeah. So we have a link on our, uh, on Sanctuary's website, sanctuary.org. The Zoom link is right there on the homepage. So 10 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So that time doesn't work well for a lot of people and that's okay. We're trying to have more services available as we get bigger and are able to do that. But yeah, sanctuary.org. So yeah, this was so great talking mm. with you. Just getting to know you a little bit better and all of your insights. We've got nine minutes. I know you said you got a hard stop at two. As you said, you had a couple of questions around the video that we put out. I know there's probably not time to cover all that if we haven't, but yeah. Is there anything that you'd like to bring into this before we wrap up? Um, I just took some notes. Uh, you all recorded the video, uh, I think after uh, watching the presentation to the committee, I think we probably covered most of the things that you raised in that, that I wanted to kind of educate on. There's no way you could have just like read all that and <laughs> everything about the, the proposal, but um, you know, and it's like, it's not like, I'm, I'm aware, I'm very aware that this won't be, uh, this won't work for everyone. Like this is not going to be something that, that works for, for all people. Um, and, and I'm, and it, and it pains me in a certain way to acknowledge that, but I, th I think this is the best that we are able to do legally and politically at this point, um, you know, outside of a whole nother effort. And I think this is just about encouraging the state of Oregon uh, in its rulemaking to, to honor sacred practice that has been the reason why we have this today. It's come from a ceremonial sacred practice and to to exclude that, you know, either effectively or actually <laughs> um, from, from Oregon's program is, it would just be tragic almost to, to not um, create room for, for communities to have their own uh, process. So, And it would happen on its own, probably. If, if you didn't bring this up, then someone would be doing it on their own and they'd have to go through the court system most likely. And there would just be, you know, so to be able to bring this to the forefront and acknowledge nationally, this is a national acknowledgement that psilocybin is a sacred practice. There are so many people out there that they hear about sanctuary and they're like, oh yeah, mushroom church, ha ha ha. Like, no, this is how we access our understanding of the higher power of this universal consciousness. Uh, so thank you so much. I think you, you are doing incredible work. So grateful to have you here and so grateful to have you out there doing what you're doing. And sanctuary overall, our community wants to help in any way we can. If anything, please don't hesitate to reach out. We didn't tell you our question. Everybody has to answer, though. We always ask our guests, um, what does psilocybin say to you? Hey, you guys are really good about getting people to get all woo-woo, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's probably uh, fair to say, as I have been, you know, doing a lot of soul searching and in, in, in trying to 
to present what sacred practice under Measure 109 might look like. It's involved a lot of uh, thought about it, a lot of uh, meditating on it, a lot of prayer about it, and it's even included uh, some tripping uh, on it. And um, the thing that that really came to me uh, while uh, doing the latter was Maria Sabina and and the role that she plays in this um, that really should play in this uh, in this in this program and how we really need to like look to her as the as a leader and that just the the harm and impact that beset her community as a result of her generously offering strangers uh, into her community I, I think that is just the, the the very important part of this that as we all think about safety you know we kind of like get into this head headspace about like you know how are we going to regulate this and it's like <laughs> we have to like honor honor that and we have to kind of make that i i think front and center uh of of this because you know that, that's the only reason why we're even here talking today is because of, of her part of the wisdom i get uh have gotten from from the mushroom has been to really you know invite maria sabina into the room and into the conversation mm. Mm. thank you so much that is so important mm-hmm. Uh, that's so important. And it's something that I don't think that I've lost sight of, but when I started Myco, you know, that was the whole purpose. I, I used to express to Courtney, like, this is why I'm doing this is because we have got to bring respect back to this practice that is so sacred. The people who brought it to us were disrespected and we've got to bring respect back into it. So thank you so much into our broader culture too. It's not even just like, you know, I think we Mm -hmm. just are used to fighting on social media and, you know, like we don't really, uh, I I think our society could probably become a lot more respectful in general. And I think like, you know, psilocybin uh, practice in Oregon can really uh, help, help with that. I think so. Invite Maria Sabina into the room. Yeah, I love, love it. That's it. gonna be the title of this episode for sure. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. too, uh, I don't know if you know, but we we also I think I may have mentioned on the phone started a five hundred one C years ago called Pledge Psilocybin Liberation Education Discipline and Guidance. And what its intention is to do is to create a scholarship fund for disadvantaged communities to have low cost free access to psilocybin. And so you know when you talk about the healing that psilocybin can bring to our society, I have a dream of dosing. First, you know, minority communities, I've worked with a lot of law enforcement, I've dosed a lot of law enforcement, and to envision a world where we can heal all this trauma that's back and forth, generational, immediate trauma, like psilocybin has such a potential to really, truly heal the world. So again, John, I just got mad respect for what you're doing, and I'm really grateful to be in the battle with you here or then in the game is it a battle is it a game conversation is it a is it a war (laughs) (laughs) i like game it's kind of fun i'm having a lot of fun here it's it's all the above yeah it's 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 into into in life that we live you know yeah thank you all for having me on your on your show today I, i think these conversations are just so important and i think the more we talk about it, you know, it's just about, you know, we just have to reframe this in a way that makes sense to people that people can understand and uh, kind of di- disarm them and, and have not have people just uh, and approach psychedelic uh, program like Oregon's program uh, from a position of fear. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, like there's healthy concern, uh, but I think there's, there's a fine line between, uh, you know, being reasonably concerned and being afraid. And I, and I think that 
we we just can't let fear govern this because uh, you know to the extent that those fears are are just exaggerated and overblown mm, for sure for sure Definitely. all right well we're all doing our part let's keep the conversation going yeah, yeah. thank you thank john you, thank you eric thank you yeah. john take care And the beating of the drum.